Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Lou Matthews, author of the new novel, Shaky Town. Lou, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Shaky Town, how would you describe the novel? Well, um, <laughs> it's a book that is linked by place. It's very similar to a number of books that influenced me. First, Whitesburg, Ohio, which is kind of the father of the genre. But after that, there were a couple books, two British books, British writers, Nell Dunn, who wrote a book called Up the Junction, which was the first book that absolutely turned me into the, it made me think I could be a writer. The second was by Pat Barker, who won a Booker Prize a couple years back, called Union Street. And the linkage in both was place. Another influence was The Women of Brewster Place by Gloria Naylor. Um, and one of the things that has struck me is, is that these are books that are stories, but they've always been linked stories, but they've always been sold as not and accepted as novels. Um, and I think it's because of that linkage, because of that through line, that, that the sense of place really is what works for, for readers. Cattery Row is another example of the genre. Um, and uh, this was, Shaky Town is a neighborhood, it's an imaginary neighborhood, but it's where I grew up. Um, this takes place, it all takes place in the 80s and basically talks about all the people who live in the region or work in the region or are passing through. Um, and it, it, it's... Um, Stories that started as early, the first stories in this book were written in the early, excuse me, in the middle 80s, 85 to 87. And the most recent um, work was finished about uh, 2020. So there's a real range there, but it was an idea that I always had in, in, in mind. It was something that I, I knew I was going to write. So where did you grow up? I grew up in um, a place called South is Glendale, California, South Glendale. But where I actually grew up was a barrio called Toonerville. Um, I was kind of an, in an odd situation. My mom was a, a Catholic school teacher. She was raising five boys on a Catholic school teacher's salary, which means there's no money, which means you know, we were poor. We didn't know it at the time because you've lived in Los Angeles. Um, and you live most of your life outdoors. It's not the same thing as living in the tenement in Chicago, 10 stories up. Um, you've got the ocean, you've got, you've got the sun, you've got a great park system. So we didn't have that, that sense we were poor, but we were, and the people around me were also poor, uh, mostly Brown. And that was the culture I was raised in. I was raised, uh, you know, this was even pre-Chicano. It was sort of like, you know, considered Mexican-American at the time. And, uh, um, and the terms, terms changed. But uh, um, so that's where I grew up and how I grew up. And um, when I started writing, I realized that nobody was writing about these people and uh, were not considered suitable characters for literature. Um, and, um, but I didn't know that at the time. So I started writing the stories. 
And what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first? Um, I started out in journalism. Um, I got out of high school by the skin of my teeth. Um, I actually was um, handed a blank diploma case. Uh, I had to make up a, a, um, a C minus. I had to make up a, a D, D plus semester of French, which I did in summer school. So I got my degree, went to junior college for a year and a half, flunked out badly, um, got married when I was 19, which was, in terms of a writing career, a real mistake. But um, I finally went back to, I was working as a warehouse, but realized that's not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Went back to Glendale Community College and um, spent two years there. Uh, I had to have straight A's so I could get a B average so I could go to UC Santa Cruz. But I started in journalism at, at Glendale JC. And basically, I thought that was going to be my career. Uh, I won a bunch of awards as the editor of the school paper. And um, actually had scholarships to USC and Missouri, which is a very good program. This was 1960. 68, 69. And the problem was UC Santa Cruz was the most attractive campus in the world right then. Life magazine just did a feature on that. So I was, I did one look at, at Santa Cruz and was hooked. Moved there and thought again, I'd continue in journalism, but get a, a degree in probably in politics. And then I took my first fiction class, first writing class uh, with Jim Houston, um, who remained a mentor for a number of years. Uh, and um, that hooked me. Um, I, once I started writing fiction and I got used to the idea of lying, um, I found that it's what I really preferred. Instead of fact checking, I could make up my own facts. That's what sustained me. So I did, I did a lot of journalism. I actually made my living as a mechanic until I was 39. And then did enough freelance journalism sort of right my way out from under the lubrack. Uh, and um, beginning in 1985, um, I stopped twisting wrenches and uh, made my living, living as a writer. You could do that then because there were a lot of airline magazines I worked for and a lot of local magazines that, that I was working for as well. And you could sustain yourself. You can't do that any longer, but uh, for, for about a, 20 year period, it was possible, but fiction was what always, you know, kept me back, brought me back to, to, to the, uh, um, I, as I, as I said at the time, I, I do journalism so I can afford my fiction habit. Sure. So who are some of the writers and authors that inspired you along the way? Um, well, I've mentioned, um, one initially, uh, Nell Dunn, whose book, up the Junction, which came out around 1963 and has never been out of print. Um, and I was working as a page at the time at the Glendale Public Library. And there were two librarians there in the fiction division, um, Eva Thompson and Marie Weiss. And Marie, I think, knew that I was going to be a writer before I did. And occasionally she would press a book on me. Uh, and when I say press, she would hand me a book and say, you have to read this. And the first book she did that with was Up the Junction. And uh, it remains a remarkable book. I use it with my students today. Um, and 
The first time I read it, it's only about 130 pages. And it's the first and only book that I read cover to cover and then opened again to page one. And um, that book stayed with me for many, many years. I actually read her before I read Hemingway. When I read Hemingway, I understood where Nell Dunn was coming from. But what Dunn does is even more radical in terms of compression, in terms of economy. She's just remarkable. She can she can sketch a full scene with one detail, and you get this whole sense of the whole place. Um, somebody I strongly urge you to read, um, even now. Um, basically, it was an account of an heiress from Chelsea who lived in Battersea, which is a uh, um, slum area in London. And it's just, it's a remarkable book. That was the first. The second book that Marie handed me and the book that really kind of ruined me for the little wire was Leonard Gardner's Fat City. And I would guess by this point, interviewing writers, you've heard about that book before, have you not? I have not, actually. Really? Okay. Yeah. This is Dennis Johnson's <laughs> favorite book. You need this, another book you need to read. read. But um, if it, that's a book that has been kept alive by, by writers. It came out in 1969. It's Gardner's only book. After that, he had a long career in television. Um, he was basically supported by Steve Bocho because Bocho loved that book so much. But it's a book that influenced two generations of, of young writers. And the main writer that it affected was Dennis Johnson. The current edition of Fat City, which is New York Review of Books, um, has a force, uh, has a, 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 an introduction by Dennis Johnson. And he talked about him, how important that book was to him. It was the same thing for me. Um, Gardner's writing about the world. It's about boxers living in Stockton. But if you read the reviews, if you read... Joan Didion, of all people, thought it was the best book of its era. And this is granted, she's from Sacramento, which is pretty close to Stockton, but but um she just talked about the fact that Gardner nailed the world. It was a world she used. Um, but you also have quotes from people like Ross McDonald's, who says, In his pity and his art, Gardner, like Melville, um, has created a world that I can't remember the rest of the quote. But anyway, it was just it was a quote that would that would make it really hard to write another book. Uh, but <laughs> it was um, filmed by John Huston. Um, I believe it was 1972, and nominated for a couple of, of Academy Awards. But uh, um, that was the book that that really made me want to write fiction and write it in a very particular way. We're very different stylists. Gardner is the only writer I know who uses the passive voice effectively. Um, but um, uh, that, that, that's also a book that you could probably argue ruined an entire generation of writers too, because he thought if Gardner got away with it, I should be able to. Um, he's writing about a world that's considered grim or bleak and it is that but there's a real beauty in the way he describes it and that's always been a model for me um, and the reviews of shaky town have basically said that that this is this is um, um, a, 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 this is this is a book that uh, um, um, basically has, has, has 
it's 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 a dark area, but there's a few gleams in the edge around the edges. So that's great. Well, are you working on a new novel now? Um, I, there's a new there's another novel that is that is is essentially ready to go. This one is called Hollywoodski, and Hollywoodski is the story of Dale Davis, who describes himself as a faded screenwriter. And his friends say, don't you mean a failed screenwriter? And Dale says, no, only poets can fail. Screenwriters fade because the bar is set so low. Um, but at one point, he was a fairly successful screenwriter. He was active in the Writers Guild, Writers Union. And during a strike, uh, he went after a very powerful producer who was a strike breaker, who was writing material on the side and convincing other writers to write during the strike. And Dale went after him. And as a result, his career was essentially scrapped. Um, the guy made sure that Dale never got another job. So he's reduced to scuffling. He's reduced to teaching at community colleges. He's what we call a freeway flyer. Um, somebody who has to teach at six different colleges in order to make a living. Uh, and then rewriting screenplays for very rich students um, the best introduction to that book, if you go to the New England Review, just go to the archive and type in Lou Matthews, and two stories will pop up. One is, um, the first story is called Some Animals Are More Equal Than Others, about a film shoot in Nicaragua that goes seriously awry um, and eventually gets scrapped. But it was just the high point. The opening line of that story is, no man knows his apotheosis. Carl Jung said that no man knows his apotheosis, but I know mine. And I can tell you the date and the time. And basically he was named as director for a movie that was eventually canceled. But that was the high point of his career. Um, the second story is called Tutorial that came out just last year. And that's about going up to a Christian college in Malibu that remain, will remain un, unnamed. Um to help uh, one of his former students accept an award. The only problem is that Dale is banned from the campus because he's not Christian. He's a secular humanist, but um, I need to take from there. But anyway, you can read both those stories and get a glimmer of what the book is about. Um, at this point, it's eight stories about Dale Davis. And then there are also three stories that are by Dale Davis. Uh, and those three stories essentially um, chart his own decline. I mean, it, it's somewhat like the one of the models for this was Hogarth's The Rake's Progress, um, which basically shows the decline and fall of a rake in England in, in the, uh, I think, 18th century. And with Dale, it, it, it's the same thing. And, and, his own story sort of chart where he is um, mentally and emotionally. Uh, and it's, it's a, a gradual descent. Uh, it does, however, have a, a reasonably happy ending because he gets some, some money from an odd place. Um, a title of one of his books was used um, by a studio and eventually he gets to sue. And even though the movie has nothing to do with him, he gets to get some bucks back for for having the, the title used. 
Um, but as I say, those two are at the New England Review, which is a, a delightful place to publish. Um, and you'll also find an interview there um, with me about Shakytown and, and has quite a lot more on the history of Shakytown, how it came about and about how I grew up and where I grew up and explains in far better detail um, and far more cogently than I'm doing today. Um, so I would recommend that. Well, I know that you've taught creative writing and I'm sure it's hard to boil down all your thoughts into, you know, a few sentences, but I was wondering what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels and possibly trying to find their own, uh, narrative voice on the page, so to speak? Well, it's, I have, it's, it's interesting because I have a couple of very different kinds of students. I teach at UCLA Extension in the writer's program, and that has a long history. UCLA Extension actually predates the university itself, 101 years old. And for about 60 years of that time, um, it has been the primary birthplace for any writer starting out in Los Angeles. I mean, if you look at the number of people who've gone through the program, Leila Lalani, Marissa Silver, Amy, Amy Bender, uh, I mean, it's, the, the list is endless. Um, two of my own students, Jim Gavin uh, and J. Ryan Stradaloos had two bestsellers uh, writing about Minnesota, Kitchens of the, of the Great Midwest and Lager Queen of Minnesota. Um, Neither of them, see, Jay Ryan doesn't have an MFA. So he's, it's, it, it, it was like, it's where you go if you want to create your own MFA program, essentially. Um, I also send a lot of students on to MFA programs, and I'll probably roast in hell someday for that. I've now said about 90. <laughs> uh, but um, that's the other way to go. And um, to some extent is the, you know, the, the, the easier option, um, but it's not necessary. But the, I have, I have a, a, an hour and a half lecture on MFA programs, and it starts with a quote from the great poet William Matthews, no relation. Um, and Bill Matthews said, the thing you need to understand about MFA programs in writing is that they're essentially a pyramid scheme. And the people at the top of the pyramid are not dying off fast enough. So you will not, you could, what you what can you expect from an NFA program? You probably will not get a mentor, may happen. You won't find an editor. Um, what you will know after two to three years is whether this is what you want to do with your life. And that's the only expectation you should have. You cannot get a teaching job probably on the basis of that unless you have a hot book that accompanies it, but you will know if this is how you want to spend your time. Um, and um, that's a little discouraging for a lot of people because they think, well, it, it is an apprenticeship program and, you know, it shouldn't be like becoming a plumber. You know, if you do your apprenticeship, then don't you get to be a journeyman? And then don't you get to be a master plumber? That's not the way it works. There's a good amount of luck that's involved always. Right place, right time. Uh, but it's a matter of, of staying with it. The one thing I've found across the board with writers who last, with writers who succeed, is the quality of lasting. 
and it's through through the thick and the thin. You know, whether you've had uh, you know great success or not, it's it's whether you know you're able to sustain yourself emotionally and physically for the long haul, um, because that's what it takes. Particularly if you're writing literary fiction. But every quarter, I will get somebody who has a breakthrough. And that's what sustains you as a teacher. To teach, you have to have hope. And, and the people I see in these classes, they say most of them are what we call adult learners. But so the range, right, the current class I've got starting October 5th, the range is um, from about 23 to about 65. Oops, sorry about uh, that. And, um, um, you know, they're there for a reason, which is also not the case. I once taught undergraduates and realized that's not what I wanted to do for a living because um, they most of them were taking writing courses because they thought it was a myth. They thought it was going to be something easy and didn't realize just how much work is required to become a real writer, how much actual labor um, is, 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 is called for. Um, Gladry O'Connor is also probably my other huge influence. And she has two essays, writing short stories and the nature and aim of fiction. And those two essays are daunting because basically they tell kids, they tell, you know, fledgling writers just how much work is involved in creating a world with extension and weight. Uh, a real world, you know, that you can't just live in your head. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh, boy. Um, that would make my head spin. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, some of it is tied up with actually students. I edit, and I've ended up editing some work by students in the last couple of years. Sure. Um, and um, there's a book I strongly recommend about Chavez Ravine, which is also a big part of Shaky Town. Uh, and it's called um, Stealing Home. It's by Eric Nussbaum. Came out last year and is regarded as the essential history of Chavez Ravine and the Dodgers and how the Dodgers ended up taking over that area. Uh, it's a very complicated story. Eric is kind of a really interesting guy. From Culver City, um, grew up with uh, Latino heritage. His family 
is from Cuba. And he grew up speaking Spanish, loving Spanish, worked as a freelancer in Mexico for a year and a half, which is hard to do. And then wrote the book because he was able to communicate with the families who were there in the 40s and 50s. Uh, that's an amazing book. I recommend that strongly. The other book um, that I finished editing about uh, uh, work productions I edited, I helped edit uh, about two years ago, is The Logger Queen of Minnesota by J. Ryan Straddle. And um, that is, again, it follows up on Jay's first bestseller, which was Kitchens of the Great Midwest. Two books I could strongly recommend. You'll find them in every airport um, in this country. And it does very well because they're, 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 they're really, they're solid books. They're eminently readable. Um, another book that I've reread recently by Dana Johnson, Elsewhere, California, is probably the best education I could think of of what it's like to grow up in Los Angeles. Dana is now the head of the writing program at USC, a full professor there. But she records what it was like to be a kid of 10 or 12 on her way to Dodger Stadium in a way that nobody else is caught. Uh, What's the name of that? Elsewhere, California. Gotcha. And it's a really fine novel, really fine novel. Dana um, was also a Flannery, uh, Flannery O'Connor Award winner for a book, Break Any Woman Down. And um, she's now had three collections of short stories. Uh, just a remarkable writer. And it's just sort of finding, she's 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 one of these people that is listed on the um, uh, sort of the, unknown writers or the, you know, the list of writers, best writers you've never heard of. She's showing up on all those list notes, which means I think she's probably going to be discovered. The other books I read over the last year, the Elena Ferranti Neapolitan Quartet, um, which have stayed with me. I just, I, I thought I would read the first one. And, and <laughs> I, I found that the characters are so fascinating. You see, you can't give up on them. Um, and, one of the things I love is what 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 translates, um, and I think that her characters are going to be remembered in the same way that Madame Bovary is. I think they will they will they will live on for a long long time. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your latest novel, Shaky Town? Um, it's Tiger Van Books. Just Google Tiger Van Books, and um, you will go to the website. Tiger Van Books is the imprint of Jim Gavin. Jim Gavin is a cult hero in many ways. He's a former student of mine uh, and uh, instantaneous bond. Um, part of it was that we shared a same English teacher in high school, uh, which we didn't discover until about 20 years later. But um, Jim published the first short story in the New Yorker, to my knowledge, about Los Angeles that was written by somebody who grew up here. It's called Costello and is a remarkable story uh, and uh, was the basis for his first book, Middlemen, which came out in, I think, 2015. I'd have to check, but did very, very well. Since then, Jim has been working in television very successfully, uh, as of two years ago, he had a cult 
um, show on AMC called Lodge 49. And if you look up Lodge 49, what you will realize is that it's the only show. It was, um, it was 1919, excuse me, 2019, 2020. And it was the only show those two years that was listed on every top 10 on every major newspaper and every major magazine um, for those two years. It was canceled. The usual deal, new executive comes in and wants to to make her mark. Um, and they cancel the show, which is still being mourned and still being discovered. But if you Google Lodge 49, you'll find out a lot more about Jim. And as a result of that temporary success, Jim decided that one of the things he wanted to do was start an imprint. And uh, um, mainly it was to publish my book because he realized that nobody in New York was ever going to touch it. Um, it had been been kicking around, and I mean literally being kicked around in, in New York City for about four or five years. So this was the only way it was going to happen. But if you go to the website, which is also fairly amusing, um, uh, you'll you'll learn a lot more about Jim and about Shaky Town, um, and how 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 all this came about because the journey has been fairly amazing. Um, and at this point, um, given the reviews and given the attention the book is is getting, um, certainly it's been worthwhile. We've, we've really, really enjoyed the ride. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Lou Matthews, author of the novel Shaky Town. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Lou, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff. Great. My daughter Jennifer couldn't be here tonight, and she has one thing, which is she wants a photo of the crowd. <laughs> and we're going to go beyond that. What I'd like you to do, if you have a copy of Shaky Cow, I'd like you to hold it up. Okay, so that photo is going to be gold because tonight we're going to go back to the Tiger Van camp, uh, camp, uh, compound and run these up to the lab where they will enhance the photos and then start looking at them one by one. And we're going to divide you into two categories, who bought and who not. Uh, there are two people here tonight I have to thank for this book, Jim Gavin and my wife, Allison Turner who bought the time for me to write. There's a much longer explanation of what Jim and Allison did in the back of the book. And once you purchased that book, you could read it. Okay. We're skipping now to the art section of the evening. That's me and Miguel. Um, at least that's the way Miguel put it. Uh, and uh, so we're going to be doing some readings. And... What you're getting now is sort of a version of she says, he says. You're going to hear two stories from Shaky Town about two of its citizens, Anita Espinosa and Emiliano Gomez, next-door neighbors, friends, and enemies for 50 years. 
The first story, which I'll be reading, Dona Nida, is Anita's version of the truth. Then my friend Miguel will read Last Dance, which is Emiliano's version of the same lifetime. They don't agree on much. Dona Nita. <laughs> The old Baracho is playing his guitar again. I can hear him through the hedge. I'm sitting on my porch swing, as I'm sure he's sitting on his in these twin houses. That old Baracho, Emiliano Gomez, has lived next door to me for more than 40 years, and he's been playing his guitar all those years, but it doesn't sound the way it used to. The hedge is Eugenia and has a new bug that shrinks the leaves and fills them with blisters, and now that it's so thin, you can hear better. But he also plays differently because he lost those three fingers on his right hand. He always said he was lucky not to lose his cord hand. He strums with the stubs and even picks a little with his thumb and little finger. Forty years ago, when we were all newly married and there was no hedge, he and my Lorenzo would stand in the yard and serenade, serenade me and, Ho and Josie. My Lorenzo couldn't play anything, but he had a deep voice and he sang like an angel going up to heaven. Whenever he sang Volver, he could make both me and Josefina cry. We were so happy then, and I'm not making this up. I know you can lie to yourself, because of course you were happy. You were young, but we really were. There was plenty of work, and a man could earn enough so that his wife could stay at home and raise the kids. I was always sorry that Lorenzo and Emiliano didn't work together. They were good friends, but Lorenzo was a paving contractor, and Emiliano had a more artistic nature. He could carve beautiful things, statues and chairs and even musical instruments, until he went to work at the studios. That ruined him, I think. All that money, and they broke everything he made. After his son died, everything changed. He loved that boy, Pablo. And after he died, that man changed. And I don't mean about it losing his fingers and losing his job. You could get another job. You could have another kid. Lorenzo and I lost two. God took Ronald and Kathy, and we missed them. But we prayed, and we had more kids. Emiliano was different. I think he lost his faith. He was always kind to Josie, but he didn't want any more kids, and I know that discouraged her. She got the cancer in her 40s, and she died well before her time. A few years after Josie died and all the kids were out of the house, Emiliano planted that hedge between our houses. And about the time you couldn't see over there anymore, he started bringing women home. I don't say they were putas. Maybe he was picking them up at that Kelso's Roundhouse or Las Quince Letras where he spent so much time. Maybe they weren't paid for whores but they all delivered, and some of them were noisy. We could hear them. It made my Lorenzo smile and turned him into the devil, too. I got no peace those nights. Some of those nights, sometimes when those women went home, 
Emiliano would come out on his porch and play his guitar. He'd play the songs of the revolution, but he would play them slowly. The Adelita is a lively song, but when you play it slowly, it's a love song, full of longing. Every time, he would take my Lorenzo out to our porch. Play it again, Lorenzo would say, through the hedge, and he would. He'd play it three or four times, and sometimes La Cucaracha, which is a thoughtful and funny song, played slow. And when Emiliano was ready to go to bed, he would play Lorenzo's favorite. Lorenzo was a tough man, the rock we all washed up against. When Emiliano played Cuatro Caminos, that would always make my husband cry. He played it at Lorenzo's funeral, and I couldn't stop crying. Tonight, the old Baracho has been playing a lot of Pedro Infante. He's drinking, you can tell. You can hear the ice in his glass. I don't know what he drinks now. He and Lorenzo stayed to tequila in the old days, muy tradicional, with a lime and salt. No ice for them in those days. But I think they drank less, drank less. I never had a taste for it. Sometimes a beer, but I never really liked it. I do have what my abuela and me and mama had, good hot tea, yerba buena, and the other herb that helps with the arthritis. They tell me if you smoke it, life seems comical, but in tea, it just makes you calm. Now he's playing a paso doble that takes me back to when we all still danced, and it's lively. And when he stops in the middle, he catches me with my toe tapping on the porch boards. He's quiet, and then I hear him refill his glasses. And then he says through the hedge, What would you like to hear, Doña Rita? And I say, La Cucaracha. And he plays, and I push back on the swing and lift my feet. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.